Hey, what's up, guys? You're now listening to Devo with Uncle Theo. It's day 22, and we're going to look at Exodus 13 through 15. And last time we left off, we talked about how the Israelites completely plundered the Egyptians. We talked about there's a mixed multitude in their mix, this rabble, and they're going to cause problems. But we also talked about how, how God grew to not only the Israelites, but to the Egyptians, that he was the only true God and how he went to war on the false gods, on the gods of Egypt. Now we'll pick up in chapter 13 and notice the note I made last time on how to celebrate Passover. Passover is going to become one of the main feasts that we'll have to learn and talk about. And it's interesting because all of these feasts will point to Christ in some way. And so we'll try to talk through that. But the main point we need to get is chapters 11 through 12 teaches Israel how to celebrate Passover in the moment. And the rest of 12 through 13 teaches them how to celebrate it for all time. And we can see that even if you look at verse one, then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, sanctify to me every firstborn, the first offspring of every womb among the sons of Israel, both man and beast, it belongs to me. Moses said to the people, remember this day in which you went out from Egypt, from the house of slavery, for by the powerful hand, the Lord brought you out from this place and nothing living shall be eaten on this day in the month of Abib, you are about to go forth. It shall be when the Lord brings you to the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite, which he swore to your fathers to give you a land flowing with milk and honey. You shall observe this right in this month. For seven days you shall eat unliving bread, and on the seventh day there will be a feast to the Lord. And so now we have the parameters of the Feast of Unleavened Bread and the Passover set. And I don't think I mentioned this last time because I focused more on God declaring war on the gods of Egypt. But in the very verse before that, in chapter 12, in verse 11, it said that this Passover feast shall be eating with your loins girded up and with your staff in hand. And loins girded up is just ancient language for prepared for battle, prepared to leave. So your loins, they would wear these large flowy garbs and then they would take a belt to tie that up so they could exit quickly or prepare for battle quickly. And so this is how they are to eat the Passover meal. And also we'll see that the unleavened bread, it says the bread of your affliction in Deuteronomy 16.3 for you came out of the land of Egypt in haste. And so the reason that they aren't to eat leaven is because if you add leaven, which we can use the word yeast to bread, it rises. And, and when you do, that takes time. And the reason you eat it unleavened is because you don't have time. You have to get out in haste. And this will always be a reminder of what Israel had to do when they fled when they left Pharaoh's presence, when God utterly obliterated the world's first superpower. And we'll see that more as we even go into chapter 14. And you get words like this in verse nine, it says, and it shall serve as a sign to you on your hand and as a reminder to you on your forehead. And verse 16 says, it shall serve as a sign on your hand 
and there's phylacteries on your forehead. And this language here is figurative and proverbial, but what ended up happening is this started to be taken literally. And you'll see later generations would actually have phylacteries, these leather prayer boxes strapped on their left arm and their forehead. But the point here was that the imagery was to teach Israel that they should be able to recall God's law on command, which is why in Jewish cultures, they teach their children the law and they teach them to have good memories because we learn this all the time, right? Thy word have I hid in my heart that I may not sin against thee, that the word shall always be on your lips. It shall always be ready so that you may trust in the Lord. Even Peter says it a different way. In 1 Peter 3.15, he says that we should always be ready to give an answer for the hope that is within us. And so this word should always be near you and on your tongue because it will always be a constant reminder of your trust in the Lord. And it's our greatest offensive and defensive weapon because Satan's only mechanism is to get us to question the word of God. If we keep the word of God foremost, Satan always comes to say, hath God said, we can't be like Eve and mess up our memory verses. She added and she took away. And it's quite interesting that Moses will later say, do not add or do not take away. And he's pointing back to Genesis, which is what Eve did. A lot of people know that she added touch, but a lot of people don't know that she took away because God says you shall freely eat. And she said, you shall eat. And that's very important because God was being generous and gracious. And that one word changes God to being more limited and a miser. And so we have to be careful to not add or take away from scripture. And Jesus is going to teach us that in his temptation in Matthew 4, where he uses the word of God to battle temptation and to battle Satan. And we're actually going to see that. It's going to be pretty cool in some of the chapters we have here today. It's going to be one of the locations that comes up again with Jesus Christ. And there's a special note here in verse 17. It says, God does not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, even though it was near. For God said the people might change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. So God led the people around the way of the wilderness to the Red Sea and the sons of Israel went up. And this is beautiful to me because in our minds, we say, why didn't God just use one plague, one nuclear plague and destroy Egypt? And we figured that out. But then we say, why didn't God just confuse the minds of these Philistines just like he just did the Egyptians? Or why didn't he just move them out the way and allow Israel to go in? And this is where we have to remind ourselves that the God of the supernatural is the God of the natural as well. And we can't tell him when to do supernatural and when to do natural. In fact, God quite naturally likes to do the natural more, but we beg for the supernatural and we have to be careful about this. I heard it put this way one time, and this always helps me. If you need a miracle, if you're always begging for the supernatural, check your life and check your heart. You most likely are doing something wrong. And that really stuck because if you need the Lord to give you a miracle to get you home, if your gas light is on E, you most likely, 
You have been doing something wrong the entire time. Now you need a miracle. If it gets to the point of a miracle in your life, always there are some character flaws that need to be developed. We need to be in need of true miracles when they rise so we can see the Lord show up. And so let's continue to grab another nugget here in chapter 13. It says in verse 19 that Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for he had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely take care of you and you shall carry my bones from here with you. This is powerful. They got the bones. They remembered Joseph and they listened to him and Israel is being obedient. This is perfect, but not quite. We will see very quickly that they're a people of faith. There's a lot of obedience here, but you're going to see some cracks in the infrastructure. All we have to do is keep reading. But now we get an interesting note about the Lord. It says the Lord was going before them in a pillar of cloud by day to lead them on the way and in a pillar of fire by night to give them light that they may travel by day and by night. He did not take away the pillar of cloud by day, nor the pillar of fire by night from before the people. In chapter 14, now the Lord spoke to Moses saying, tell the sons of Israel to turn back and camp before Piharath between Migdal and the sea. You shall camp in front of Baal-Zephon opposite it by the sea. Now, this is very interesting. Why is this interesting? Because God is causing them to exit. Then he turns and says, okay, guys, turn back. Like, what? Turn back. Why would you do this? This is tactical. This is strategic. Keep reading. For Pharaoh will say the sons of Israel are wandering aimlessly in the land. You guys have to get this. Look how good God is. God said, I got the firstborn, but I haven't gotten who yet? Pharaoh, top boss. And what is he saying to Pharaoh? Come on out. Come fight. I'm ready to fight. And he's taunting him. He has his children in the wilderness. He told them to turn back. And it looks like now they're wandering aimlessly. So look at this from Pharaoh's vantage point. He see these people that he let go out. Now they look confused. They look like they're wandering all over the place. And what will this do? This will cause, verse 4, cause Pharaoh's heart to harden and he'll chase after them. God is a boxer. You ever seen these boxing matches where the boxer is dancing around the ring, taunting his opponent, telling him to come on? Only two types of boxers do this. One is he sizes up his opponent and he immediately knows that he's no match for him. And the other one is just foolish. He's arrogant. And this is just part of his character. Obviously, we know God in the latter. God knows that Pharaoh is no match for him. And he's touching them. He says, come on, Pharaoh, come on out. And Pharaoh bites in his heart. He chases after them. But you got to get the full picture. Who does not know what God is doing? Moses and the people. And so we get their vantage point now. Look at what they start to say. So Pharaoh draws out. In verse 6, he makes his chariot ready, and he took his people with him, and he took 600 select chariots and other chariots of Egypt, and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers all over them. And they chase after the sons of Israel, and they overtake them. And as Pharaoh drew near, this is in 10, 
quite naturally, Israel becomes frightened. And they say, here it is. Moses, is it because there were no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? Why have you dealt with us in this way, bringing us out of Egypt? Is it not the word that we spoke to you in Egypt saying, leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? And this is bad because God said, let them go that they may serve me. They're saying the exact opposite. This is not good. And Moses is panicking. He doesn't know what to do. But look at what Moses does. He says, do not fear. Stand by and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. And the Egyptians whom you have seen today, you will never see them again forever. The Lord will fight for you while you keep silent. And this is so beautiful because this is what the name Israel means. God fights for you. You remember God turned Jacob's name on his head. They had that wrestling match. He touched his hip, said, no longer will you fight against me. You've been striving. You came out of the womb, grabbing Esau's heel, and you've been fighting and scheming against me all your life. I touch your hip. No longer will you fight me. I'll fight for you. Now that's Israel's name. That's their motto. And God has said it. And Moses has confirmed it, that now Israel has a God who fights for them. And that's what it means to be still. When we say we're being still and trusting in the Lord, that's not go grab a seat and twiddle your thumbs. That's continue doing what you've always been doing, walking in obedience, living by faith, but trusting in your heart while you're doing those things in obedience. God will fight for you. That pillar of cloud by day and that fire by night will stand on your behalf always. That presence that God promises will never leave you or forsake you. And we have that presence if we remain in obedience. But some people have skewed the word of what it means to be still. They make it almost this idle activity of nothingness and laziness. It's the exact opposite. It's obedience. And so they're being obedient to the word of the Lord. Pharaoh comes out and look at God. God is a warrior. It says, verse 19, the angel of God who had been going before the camp, look at what he does. He moves behind them. What is he saying? I've been leading Israel. They're encamping on us now. I got to get in the back. Why? Because now I got to fight. <laughs> this is so powerful in the text. So God moves from leading them to moving in the back and stood behind them to fight. And I have to point this out again. I would be remiss if I didn't. Look at verse 24. It says, at the morning watch, the Lord looked down on the army of the Egyptians through the pillar of fire in the cloud and brought the army of the Egyptians into confusion. He caused their chariots to swerve and made them drive with difficulty. So God is fighting for them. But did you catch that? I thought God was the pillar of cloud and the fire. And it says the Lord looks down through the pillar of cloud. You got to get these. These are two Yahwehs again in the text. And again, we know there's three persons in the Trinity, and we know this is not polytheism. And so you have God in heaven and God on earth. And this, my friends, is why I argue that this is the pre-incarnate Christ all right here, right now, fighting in redemptive history. So Jesus did not land on earth in the incarnation. He took on flesh in the incarnation. He's always been fighting on behalf of his people all throughout human history. 
And that's something to worship him about. And as we continue, God wipes them out. It says they're able to walk on dry ground, but the Egyptians, their wheels start to swerve and God confuses them and they have to drive with difficulty. And as they cross, the waters return. This is verse 28 and covered the chariots and the horsemen, even Pharaoh's entire army that had gone into the sea after them. Not even one of them remained. And it says, thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Think about that. All those bodies. We missed this point that they were able to cross carefully and safely. But the water doesn't just cover up the Egyptians. The water pushes them on the seashore. And they can see all that death around them. And this is sobering. And look at what he causes them to do. Verse 31, when Israel saw the great power which the Lord had used against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. Beautiful. There is a but. You need to be suspicious because they're believing now, but we'll immediately run into some problems. So put an asterisk. By that. And we walk into verse 15 and they break out in song. And this is why we break out in song in church. This is the only appropriate response to an all powerful God who works on our behalf. We sing biblical songs back to him. Sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. The horse and the rider he has hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He is my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. Look at verse three. God isn't just this jolly green giant, this fake version of an all-loving God who loves everybody indiscriminately. We see here that God is love, but because he loves, it isn't what people paint him as today. Because he loves, he loves everybody. He's a universalist. We'll all be saved. Not quite. Because God is love, he is a warrior. Verse three, the Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his army he cast into the sea and the choices of his officers were drowned in the Red Sea. This is the greatness and the excellence of God's name. And we get a beautiful statement on the majesticness and the holiness of our God in verse 11. This is when we say, hallowed be thy name. This is that type of language. Who is like you among the gods, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic and holy? No one, which is why we hollow his name, which means we put it in a category of its own. And God has exalted himself up and above all the false gods. He's the most high God. And we knew this already. Melchizedek taught Abraham this, but we see this placed in song and we ride out the chapter with a test. I told you to put an asterisk by them. Look at verse 22. Then Moses led Israel from the Red Sea and they went out into the wilderness of Shur. And they went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the waters of Marah, for they were bitter. Therefore it was named Marah. So the people grumbled at Moses saying, what shall we drink? Then he cried out to the Lord and the Lord showed him a tree and he threw it into the waters and the waters became sweet. And there he made them a statue and a regulation, and there he tested them. He said to them, if I will give earnest heed 
to the voice of the Lord your God and do right in his sight. And there he made a commandment and a statute. And then we see now Moses is a true prophet. He's making commandments. He's making statutes. And that's when we know we have a prophet, when he can do things like this. But they're tested. And we have to grab some theology here. Moses turns the bitter water sweet in verse 25. How? The Lord showed him a tree. Guess what that word showed is in Hebrew? It's the word Torah, which is our English word law. And this is so beautiful. This is the first usage of this word. And this is the definition that we should always have because when people say the law saves, it was never meant to save. God is about to reveal the law and he's starting to show the nature of the law as he's about to reveal it. He says it shows, it teaches. And this is what happens here. God showed Moses a tree and this is how the water turns sweet. And let's end our discussion on the nature of the law. The law was never meant to save. It was always meant to show. It was always meant to point. It was always meant to teach. I heard it put this way. The law is an exit sign. If you're in a fire, you need to know where all of the exit signs are. But can the exit sign save you? No, you would be a foolish man or woman in the midst of a fire to jump up in the ceiling and grab and bear hug the exit sign saying, please save me, Jesus. No matter how much you believe in that sign, it will never save you. It was only meant to show you where the exit was. And that's what the law does. It shows us where Christ is and we're to follow that law to Christ. We're not to fall in love with the law and trust in the law. This is where a lot of people get it wrong and they fall into error and they fall into heresy. And these are the people that Christ is going to meet in his day. They fall in love with the law so much that they miss what the law points to. And brothers and sisters, do not miss what the law points to. Fall in love with the law giver and not the law itself. The law was meant to teach. The law was meant to show. And the law was meant to point you to your life giver, your life saver, your life rev, Jesus Christ. Trust in him, my friends, because he's the only one because in his name, the name of Jesus, that is the only name given under heaven amongst men, whereby we must be saved. You all take care and we'll pick up next time. Yeah. Day 22, chapter 16 through 18. Hey, riding holy weapons, yeah, they on my side. I'm never